Oh, it's Ken Cotson! That's what it's called, pantophobia. Not fear of pants, though, if that's what you're thinking. It's fear of everything. The incident that made me afraid and very aware of water and its danger was when I was eight years old, and at some point, my head went underwater, and I couldn't get back up. Welcome to Pantophobia. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. We're here to discuss fear and anxiety, so please understand that it may be uncomfortable to listen to some of the things we're about to discuss. There may be some profanity, and when possible, we'll be sharing our own anxiety with you in the hopes that frank talk about this villainous emotion can help vanquish it. This time, we're going to explore the feeling of drowning in various different forms. This is co-host Aubrey Henretti. The fear of drowning doesn't get as much press as some of our other fears. Spiders, heights, public speaking, yes. But drowning? When's the last time you heard someone say they were scared of drowning? I'm willing to bet it was pretty recently. We all talk about drowning all the time. We're so scared of it that we use it as a metaphor for other things we're scared of. We drown in sorrow and in debt. When we feel overwhelmed, we say we're in over our heads. When we feel like the whole world is trying to keep us somewhere we don't want to be, we say we're swimming against the tide. So in a sense, Drowning is like the gold standard of fear, the fear that determines the worth of all the others. Or, if you'd prefer a physics metaphor, drowning would be the Higgs boson of fears. I'm pretty sure that works. I'm not a scientist, but you see what I'm getting at. Water is an ever-present adversary in our lives. We are here on the shores of Lake Michigan at the John G. Shedd Aquarium, once the world's most popular aquarium, now I believe it's number two after Atlanta. And uh, I love how you just looked at us like we're going to know the answer to that question. You know <laughs> Come on, you're from Chicago, you have to represent. <laughs> She's from the suburbs of Detroit. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm, I'm the only... South Detroit, yes. No, North. <laughs> yeah. There is no South Detroit. So, I am Jeff Wagg. Hi, I'm Aubrey Henready. I'm Mark Rauke. We are here next to a lake that is really a sea. If you're not from the Midwest, it's fairly hard to appreciate how big the Great Lakes are. They're very dangerous. They're not the ocean, but this lake has killed a lot of people. In fact, Lake Michigan is the most dangerous of Great Lakes. Since 2002, 243 people have been rescued from drowning, while another 82 weren't so lucky. Most of these involved swimmers who found themselves being whisked away from the shore in what's known as a rip current. These form when high winds force water up against the shore. The water pressure builds up and pushes against the shore, forming a current that flows swiftly back into deeper water carrying swimmers with it. The swimmer's instinct is to fight, though the power of the current is often much stronger than they are able to swim. This leaves them exhausted and heading away from shore. 
Our own Mark Gronke has been caught in one of these currents while on vacation in Florida. It was when I was eight years old and I went to the beach with my grandparents. We were in Daytona. This is my first experience with the ocean. I was very excited because it was just myself and my grandparents. So I had all the attention. So at eight years old, that's pretty great. Grandparents were, were rather elderly, so they were just telling me to go ahead in the water and they'll be on the shore you know, nearby. So I did. I, I went out into the water and I was splashing around and I was having a good time. And at some point, my head went underwater and I couldn't get back up. I, I got caught in a rip current that pulled me down underneath the water. I don't know where I was exactly when my head went under, but by the time I surfaced, I was 50, 60 feet away. At that point, I don't know if I was crying or if it's just that the ocean tastes like your own tears. I don't know, I, I was panicking. The only reason that I has, was able to resurface was because the water just let me go. <laughs> I mean, this was not a feat of strength on my part. This was not someone else's rescue. You know, I was just, it was dumb luck that I was pulled under and dumb luck that I survived. So wait, were you guys just laughing at me? When I just told you about how I narrowly escaped death? Well, I wouldn't say we were laughing at you. I was laughing at the idea of the water letting you go. Yeah, I think the humorousness was in like the the idea that the ocean is like a uh, capricious sort of arbitrary god. Just being like, yeah, I'm going to keep you down here for a bit. And then just at some point it decides you're finished. Well, that's exactly how it felt. So that's that's a pretty accurate assessment. Mark describes here what most drowning victims report, a sense of panic and powerlessness. In a way, being caught in a rip current is like being paralyzed. No matter how you struggle, you can't make any progress towards the surface. And for those who do, it seems like some outside force let them go. That force is the water. It seems a simple problem. Keep your head above water. How hard can this be? Stay on land and you won't drown. If you do enter the water, keep your head above the surface. Most people float, so again, how hard can this be? Deceptively hard, and it's that deception that leads to many drownings. From 2005 to 2009, there were 3,533 fatal drownings in the U.S. alone, and that doesn't include drownings from boating accidents. These were people who entered the water confident that they could remain breathing, and were wrong. So what goes wrong? The process of drowning is different depending on the water. You'll probably die faster in fresh water, not only because you don't float as well, but also because the lack of salt in the water makes it more damaging to the lungs. When salt water enters your lungs, it washes away some of the natural surfactant that allows the lungs to absorb oxygen and send it to the bloodstream. This damages the alveoli and causes them to function poorly, resulting in hypoxia and then death. In fresh water, all surfactant is instantly destroyed, rendering the lungs useless. Near-drowning victims recover more easily if they were immersed in salt water. And it doesn't take much water. The killer isn't water, it's lack of oxygen. Most drowning victims have only a small amount of water in their lungs, and some have no water at all. 
people who are rescued and brought to shore may appear to be alive, but they've actually suffered irreparable damage to their lungs or brain and die soon afterwards. This has happened to many drowning victims, including freediver Nicholas Mevely. After achieving a dive of 236 feet with no scuba or other breathing equipment, he surfaced, let everyone know he was okay, and then passed out 30 seconds later. He never regained consciousness, having finished the drowning process above the water. There is a pervasive myth that drowning isn't such a bad way to die. The reality is much different. It's so different, in fact, that drowning is a common form of torture. If you've heard of waterboarding, you've heard of torture by drowning. Why go to all the trouble of submerging someone when you can just restrain them and give them the sensation of drowning? The board is just a board on two sawhorses. The victim is placed back down on the board and restrained. A towel is placed over his head and water is poured on in small amounts, no more than a cup at a time. You guys know that Christopher Hitchens let himself be waterboarded and recorded it. Just oh yeah. So he would know what it was Ooh. like. No, this was years ago and he wasn't he he came out before that saying, "Oh, come on, waterboarding camp, it's not torture, it's just it's a little bit, a few right. drops of water on your face. Big proponent for the Iraq war. And then wow. people, yeah, then people came up to him and they were like, fine, why don't you do it? If you're so convinced that it's not that bad. And then he was like, okay. And so he did. He did. I'm respecting for taking the dare. Well, Vanity Fair actually recorded it. And you can watch it on YouTube. What you see is him going through the process. But of course, there isn't so much to see because... It's just a guy being held down on a board and water being sprinkled over his face. But I think maybe what you hear is a little bit more disturbing. How long do you think you could hold your breath? Probably close to a minute. Yeah, I would guess around if I, Yeah, If I just did that, just didn't try to breathe and game the system, then yeah, I could probably last a minute and a half, but All right. or, or a little bit longer. Well, let's listen to what happened to Christopher Hitchens, who was motivated to last as long as possible. Because this was just a demonstration, Hitchens had two metal objects, one in each hand. If he dropped either of them, the test would come to an immediate end. Torture victims have no way to make it stop. Enjoy the music. Let you know it's 15. Yeah, 15 on, 15 off. Third time through, if he hasn't done it, we're going to... At this point, Christopher Hitchens is being led into the room. His hands and feet are tied to the board, and his head is covered with a dark hood. Completely immobilized, his face is now covered with a white bath towel. A masked man has a milk jug filled with water, and he starts sprinkling it on his face. After 14 seconds, Christopher Hitchens drops the weights, and the test is concluded. The men quickly untie him, take his pulse to make sure that he's okay. He is visibly disturbed.
It's annoying to me now to read every time it's discussed in the press or in Congress that it simulates the feeling of drowning. It doesn't simulate the feeling of drowning. You are being drowned slowly. If you hold your breath, it has the effect of tightening the grip of this stuff on your, over your face and mouth. So it's a, it's a smothering feeling as well as a drowning feeling. I mean, I really wanted it to stop. It, everything completely goes on you when you're breathing water. You, you, you can't think about anything else. Christopher Hitchens was diagnosed with esophageal cancer in June of 2011 and died in December of the same year. In what must have seemed a cruel coincidence, his direct cause of death was pneumonia, which has been described as feeling like drowning. So do you think it's ethical for a magazine to say, hey, we'd like to torture you and record it and share that with people? I think it is in this context because it wouldn't be ethical to like do a psychological study where you ask people to do that. But I think it's different if it's somebody who is saying, I'm going to subject myself to this experience and then talk about it publicly. Then it's on him. Well, we're going to assume he had informed consent since his job is to be the one informing everybody else. Right. So I would assume he knew everything about waterboarding going into it. And that kind of gets that seems fair right. off. I would imagine that that's true. Given his, his statements previously about waterboarding, I would imagine that he would be the most informed. Uh, <laughs> At least he should be. You would hope. It would be reasonable to conclude that waterboarding and drowning were a simple matter of water getting in your lungs. It turns out it's much more complicated than that. Humans and other fur-bearing animals have something called the mammalian diving reflex. The moment your face hits cold water, your body changes from a land animal into a water animal. No, obviously you can't breathe underwater, but your body will change itself into an organism better able to deal with a lack of oxygen, at least for a short time. Yes, you become part seal. First, your airway closes, preventing water from getting into your lungs. That's a good start, but it also prevents you from getting more oxygen. In order to preserve what oxygen is there, your heart slows and your capillaries constrict in your less important body parts. According to your body, that includes your skin and limbs. Your brain will be fully oxygenated, allowing you to think yourself out of the problem. Unfortunately, if that solution involves using your limbs, you'll find them to be weaker than normal. Because of this response, people can hold their breath longer in the water than they can on land. People engaged in the sport of extreme breath holding, yes, that's a thing, practice their skills underwater. While this seems less safe than simply holding your breath on land, the results are worth it, at least to them. Tom Ciatis currently holds the world record at a breathtaking, or not, 22 minutes and 22 seconds. The average person struggles to hold their breath more than 30 seconds. For someone holding their breath voluntarily, there's likely very little panic as they know they're in control of the process. For someone in the process of drowning, things are different. I'm going to describe the process in some detail. The first part of drowning is realizing that you've lost control. You're no longer able to just breathe normally. That thing you do all day long without thinking about it now requires effort and planning. You'll try to fix that by finding a place to stand. In most cases, you won't be able to. Then panic really sets in. 
You may thrash your arms and legs trying to swim. If there's anything nearby, such as a stick or even a person, you'll try to climb it. You'll do anything to get somewhere where you can just breathe. Your efforts will come to nothing. Whatever you climbed won't help. And if what you tried to climb is an untrained rescuer, you've probably just doomed them to death as well. Your head goes underwater. You use every last bit of strength to get your mouth into the air. And you do! But now you're out of energy. Many people think drowning looks like someone waving from the water, but in fact it usually looks like someone just being still. When you're really in trouble, you're nearly motionless, all your concentration fighting the urge to take a breath of water. Finally, you give in and take that breath. When water reaches your lower airway, your throat goes into a spasm trying to keep the water out of your lungs. You cough and gag, which makes some of your breathing involuntary and introduces more water into your throat. You may try to swallow the water as a last-ditch effort to keep it from entering your lungs. Eventually, you lose this battle and consciousness. As you slip away, there's an 80% chance that your throat will open and water will flow into your lungs. If that doesn't happen... Your lungs remain dry, but you're still one more person on the list of those who didn't think that a simple swim would kill them. If all that has made you uncomfortable, I'm afraid we're not done. There are a couple of ways to simulate drowning without having yourself waterboarded. One process simulates what it would be like to fall through the ice into frigid water. It's simple. Fill a bowl with water and ice, place your hand inside, and pump your fist. If you stop pumping your fist, you die. Forty-five seconds in. My fingers are numb. There's quite a bit of pain. But I can still pump. Two minutes. Still pumping. Doesn't feel like my hand anymore, though. Fingers feel completely detached really have a, a sense of dread now. I really would like this to be over. I'm imagining myself floating in the ocean, having my whole body feel like this. That is a panic-inducing thought. 2.45, really having a hard time pumping now. I mean, my fingers are moving, my hand is moving, but it's really difficult to do it with any kind of accuracy. Yes, it's getting very uncomfortable. So I would imagine I would have enough motion here to still be able to tread water. But even the slightest contact with an ice cube now hurts. I just feel these little electrical pulses rather than my actual fingers. And I think my hand is pumping, but I actually don't know because I can't feel the, feel the pumping. Um, all I can feel is ice. I have four minutes. I don't think I can really pump anymore. I don't seem to have any real control. I can't even tell if there's an ice cube in my hand or not. Everything just kind of hurts. At this point, even though there's pain without movement, the pain of movement is so much greater that I would think I would just stop. So at 4 minutes and 45 seconds, I've stopped pumping. Another way is online, and you can try it right now. 
the French company Guy Cotin has provided a surprisingly realistic drowning simulator online. It's called Sortie en Mer, French for a trip to sea. We had Aubrey give it a try. I'm getting ready to watch a video that Jeff sent me, but did not tell me what it is, which makes me a little bit nervous. Uh, it's like being handed a box and somebody says, put your hand inside this box. I promise there isn't a tarantula inside of it, which is essentially the only assurance I got from Jeff. There are no spiders in this video. Given Aubrey's reaction to spiders and what we're doing in this podcast, I think there might be spiders in a future video. So I'm going to pull it up. I'm on a boat. My friend Charles is there, pulling one of the ropes. I don't know how to pull boat ropes. Oh, oh, that didn't go well at all. So I'm in the water. Uh, scroll without stopping to stay on the surface. Assume it means scroll up. So that's what I'm doing. Okay. He's yelling at me to come back. I don't, it's getting harder to stay above the water. Uh-huh. Yep. I keep yelling for him. This is actually kind of upsetting. I feel a little like my heart is starting to beat a little faster. Even though I can breathe. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, what the fuck is he doing indeed, Julianne? I don't... I'm still scrolling. Nothing really much is happening. My hand is starting to get tired. Oh, no, no, I'm, I'm going. Nope, I'm not tired. Oh boy. That's... <laughs> a little thing came up that said, Already tired? Better keep scrolling. And I was like, oh, indeed. I feel a little bad for this guy. 136.8. Is that supposed to be my pulse? He's really uh, upset. I don't really know what to do. I'm not going to be able to keep this up forever. Ah, I have tendonitis in this hand too. This is not going well. Alright, you know what? I'm going to. I gotta stop. It's too much. I'm sorry, buddy. Sorry, Julianne. Ugh, it is really, it's really upsetting to watch this. More than I would have expected. Especially how glue. Oh, I'm. What is. What? That's. That's really upsetting. Somebody just screamed, and I apparently hallucinated. I'm at the bottom of the water. I'm like maybe having flashbacks, some sort of life passing before my eyes sort of a thing. I don't like it. There's the sun through the water. I drowned after 1 minute and 15 seconds. That's not very good, huh? See, you tire faster than you think. What kind of terrible public service announcement is this? The simulator isn't just a sadistic house of horrors. The folks at Guy Cotin trying to make a point, and that is, unexpected things happen on boats, and when they do, you'll wish you had a life jacket on. Only 16% of drowning victims are found wearing a life vest. 
Well, that was interesting. I think at the beginning, I, you know, you kind of get what it is pretty fast. Uh, as soon as you fall off the boat and it tells you to start scrolling, you're like, oh, right, I have to try to stay alive and it's going to be hard. But I was not prepared for how much I felt the experience in my stomach. I guess I would recommend that uh, to anybody who's maybe doesn't already have a fear of drowning. If you do have one specifically, I don't see that as being a good experience for you. But maybe for people who are trying to understand, yeah, give it a try. Okay, we're done traumatizing you, and ourselves. Recording some of this material has been uncomfortable at best and painful at worst. But we're doing this for a reason. One of the steps in overcoming a fear of drowning is understanding the process. But now we're here to tell you there's hope. If you're afraid of water or drowning, there is help out there. In fact, there's a lot of help. The film company Falcon Rattler Media is working on a video called Taking the Plunge that follows two women who work through their fears. The filmmakers hope that by watching this video, you'll reduce your own chance of drowning. The website waterphobias.com offers information on workshops and classes that can help. They believe there are three overlapping elements involved. Emotional support, cognitive awareness, and aquatic skill building. Those three things are engaged at the same time, giving you the skills and support you need to experience water activities the way others can. Their Strategies Overcoming Aquatic Phobias program, SOAP for short, has won awards. Primarily the brainchild of mental health counselor Jeff Krieger, the program arms you with the skills you need before you even enter the water. It starts with breathing on land, and then in the pool, but in the shallow end while you're holding onto the side. Then you'll go a little deeper and gradually you'll enter water over your head. Eventually, the hope is that you'll not only be swimming freely, but also enjoying it. And if something does go wrong, you'll have the skills to deal with it. All the while, the emotional component of the phobia will be acknowledged, respected, and challenged. It may not be easy, but it's easier than spending your life in fear. For Mark, his experience in Florida left him so fearful of water that he avoided participating in a diving experience that he'd paid thousands of dollars for. This was a cruise in the Galapagos Islands, and in the Shedd Aquarium, we asked Mark how he was feeling when he got on board the boat. Yeah, at that point, it was more of like a queasy feeling in my stomach that I started experiencing. The slow buildup of anxiety that I guess anxious people would be uncomfortably familiar with. It was still distant at that point. There was still you know, a whole evening between me and it. So I was aware, you know, just going on this trip, this would happen. So I had been like working to mentally prepare myself for this for a while. I didn't know if I would go or not when I stepped on the boat, but it was in the back of my head for quite a while. It was just until that point that it became much more concrete. People were doing karaoke, but I uh, excused myself relatively early and I missed it because I was trying not to puke. By this point, you had learned that this was not simply putting on a snorkel and mask and walking in from the beach and being able to control how deep the water was. This no. was, in fact, getting off of a Zodiac into the Humboldt current, which moves 
you were actually going to have to put yourself in nearly the same conditions you were in before. Yes, I knew it was uh, it was deep sea snorkeling where I would not be able to really see or interact with the bottom in any sort of meaningful way. But unlike at Daytona Beach, there was stuff to see and interact with. I mean, this wasn't just like cloudy, murky water where I could only see the surface as this amorphous lit blob. This was going in the water with a definite purpose. In fact, diving in the Galapagos is a unique experience. It's one of the few places in the world where the animals living there have no fear of humans. It's not uncommon to dive with sea lions and seals and even penguins who at times will corkscrew around your body. It's a very special experience and one that Mark was about to miss. I'm running the tour, so it's my job to make sure that everybody is ready to go and such. So most people have gone in the water, and then on the back of the ship, I meet you, Mark, and I ask, are you going snorkeling? And I told you that, uh, no, I'm just going to bow this one out. I told you that I was going to enjoy the empty ship and uh, maybe go up to one of the upper decks and just read for a little bit in, like, you know, the nice quiet and in the tropical setting which uh, you bought hook, line, and sinker because uh, I'm your friend. So you probably wouldn't be thinking that I would just lie right to your face like I did. <laughs> no, no, and, and you didn't have to. You could have said I'm not keen on the swimming, but that seems to be part of it because seems to be some sort of shame associated with nearly drowning and subsequently being afraid of being in the water. Yeah, absolutely. There was shame involved in it because this is something that is reasonably safe, at least as safe as the things I do for a living and don't bat an eyelash at. Mark is a pipe fitter and encounters dangerous circumstances every day at his job, whether it be leaking steam pipes, heavy objects, or simply falling off the side of a building. He's a man who knows danger. This was really safe. You had boats out there to rescue if anything went wrong. Most people had inflatable life jackets on. Mm -hmm. There were sharks. Well, hey, I mean, I don't think we should leave out the gender element of this either. You, you, Jeff and Mark, are both bearded men. This is true. I feel like uh, probably from your childhood, you've been encouraged never to say you're scared to do something. Nobody likes to admit they're afraid to do something, but especially people like you guys are not given safe ways to express that. That's an interesting point. Because you could have said, you know, I really I really don't want to swim today. You could have said that. You could have said, I'm afraid to go swimming today. You wimp. Just get in the water. I wasn't going to say that. You coward. Not only had Mark not taken advantage of a diving experience that many would envy, he had lied to a friend about it. However, something happened to Mark while he enjoyed the emptiness of the ship that changed his life for the better. On this trip, there were many opportunities to go swimming. Did you, in the Galapagos at all, go in the water the entire trip? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Later that same day, I decided that if I was ever going to experience everything that this trip had to offer, which it wasn't cheap. It was it was not no. something that both people get a chance to do. This is something that I had to plan out and had to make sacrifices to afford myself and stuff that not everyone is going to get a chance to do. I couldn't just waste that. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of how I was looking at it. So which which of those things do you think gave you the strength you needed to overcome the fear? Was it 
the fear of missing out on a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, the fear of wasting money, or the fear of considering yourself to not be fully a man because you couldn't conquer this fear? I think one of the big parts about it was when everyone came back from that first trip talking about the things that they saw. Not to discount those other things, but I wanted to have something to talk about, you know, to be a part of the conversation and to be a part of that group and to see the things that they saw. So yeah, I, want, I wanted to see the sea lions swimming around like you can only do if you're in that environment. What I wanted to do was, was have those experiences. The curiosity about what is out there helped me overcome my fear of the water. That's awesome. Mark, without help from anyone else, was able to overcome his strong fear of swimming in the ocean with the help of curiosity. Not everyone can do this. If you're someone who likes fish but is afraid of swimming, you might be able to use your desire to see fish to help get you in the water. But you may need some help, such as that mentioned earlier in the show and in the show notes. This isn't a bad thing, it's a good one. Fear of water, as strong as it might be, can be overcome. We asked Mark if he's completely free of anxiety concerning water now. I don't think it goes away, but it becomes less than. I think learning to deal with it, learning to manage it, kind of lessens, not only like lessens its impact on your life, but uh, decreases its impact on your psyche, on your, you know, your, your emotional well-being. I went snorkeling in Mexico since then, and I've, I've been snorkeling a couple times in, uh, in New Caledonia. I, I kind of I'm happy with how this wrapped up because we had Mark, who's like a success story. He was able to overcome this fear. It didn't go away completely, but it's no longer a big deal. It's like instead of having a broken my life. Yeah, right. You you can do things now that you couldn't do before, and it was all you. You didn't actually have any help. Well, there was peer pressure. Well, <laughs> some good you don't have to pressure. lie to anyone's face about the water. But you don't. Have, it's yeah. like you don't have a broken leg anymore. You now you just have a scar on your leg. That's awful metaphor <laughs> but apt <laughs> it works well that was an adventure <laughs> you couldn't even find an accurate word to describe it yeah, specific the fear of drowning it's it's all the fear of water maybe because it's so universal i mean everyone is scared of drowning this will kill me that's bad and it will kill me in a way that i'm intimately familiar with which was not fun it's like oh i know what this is like yeah, and no. it's awful well yeah. i developed a new fear which is drowning after you get out of the water that's yeah and we didn't even terrible. talk about what happens to divers who screw up their mixture and die like a day or two later i certainly felt slightly traumatized during the drowning simulation even though it was on the internet i like, thought wait. it was funny how peaceful it looked on the bottom like when you hit the bottom and there's the sand and the light you're like oh that's nice <laughs> it just looked nice except that you can't breathe well that's yeah. the one slight drawback that part where i remember being snorkeling which was nice which was a good thing to actually like associate in my mind after that particular traumatic experience online yeah. but it's good to sometimes face the things you're scared of. I think that's the point. So anybody who's been listening with us, who's upset or who's going, ooh, listening on the train or wherever you listen to podcasts. They hung up long ago. They're that's, long gone. Yeah, they're, they're gone. <laughs> but I feel like that's great. Yeah, if you've made it to this point, congratulations. You have faced a fear with us. Yeah, and maybe one you didn't even know you had. You're welcome. Freeze frame. <laughs>
We all high five. Then <laughs> it just fades out to the credits. <laughs> well, actually, yeah. We'd like to thank Christopher Hitchens and Vanity Fair for showing us what waterboarding is really like, and Jeff Krieger for developing his SOAP program. More information about the things we've mentioned, including an extended version of Mark telling the whole story of overcoming his fear, can be found at collegeofcuriosity.com. Special thanks to composers Alex Mason, Kai Engel, and Chris Zabriskie for creating the music used in this episode. And of course, thanks to you for listening. This has been a production of the College of Curiosity, and you can find us on Facebook and at collegeofcuriosity.com. Hey there, Jeff again. I'd just like to let you know that we have a trip for the curious planned for the first weekend of August 2016. We'll be taking over a dark sky site high in the Colorado Rockies for some exploration and astronomy. During the day, we'll visit some local sites, such as Wolf Mountain, where we may have a close encounter with actual wolves, and Bishop's Castle, one man's hand-built fortress in the sky. Then we'll gather for a meal and talk about how ancient Americans viewed the stars, and get some instructions for how to use the array of telescopes we'll have set up. If the weather cooperates, and it's likely to, we should be able to see things such as Pluto, nebulae, and galaxies, and the amazing glow of our galactic disk, known as the Milky Way. Space is unlimited, but we only have room for so many. Full details are available at collegeofcuriosity.com. We hope you can join us.